0: Hey everybody, this is Steve Hutto with Harvest Celebration Ministries and the Missions Community. Thanks for checking out my podcast today. I have a great teaching for you. We're going to be talking about bringing back the rivers. Bringing back the rivers. Let's go to Psalm 107, 33. And I'll be reading through verse 37. It reads like this. He, God, changes rivers into a wilderness and springs of water into a thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salt waste, because of the wickedness of those who dwell in it. But now it changes, in the verse 35, he, also God, changes a wilderness into a pool of water, and a dry land into springs of water, and there he makes the hungry to dwell, so that they may establish an inhabited city and sow fields, and plant vineyards, and gather a fruitful harvest. From this we see that because of wickedness, God can change a fruitful land into a wasteland. But on the other hand, because of righteousness, God can take a wasteland that's dry and thirsty and turn it back into a fruitful land. And that's what I want to talk to you about in the teaching today, bringing back the rivers. Because in my humble opinion, I believe that a lot of the rivers, the rivers of the Holy Spirit, spiritual rivers, natural rivers, I mean even in the natural things are drying up in our nation because of the wickedness. That's running rampant in our nation. And I'll talk more about that. And let me tell you right at the beginning this is not one of those doom and gloom, bang you over the head with a Bible type messages, but I am going to be speaking the truth. And my prayer has been, and it is right now, that you would hear the voice of God through me by the presence and the power of His Holy Spirit. So now, let's take the bad first. It's kind of like David gives us the bad news, the psalmist. He gives us the bad news first and then the good news. So here's the bad news. Verses 33 and 34. He changes rivers into a wilderness and springs of water into a thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who dwell in it. Now, if you've lived a few years, you can see from where we have fallen as a nation. And the longer you live you can see how far we've fallen as a nation because of the wickedness in our land we've drifted far away from god and listen to me i'm i'm speaking to christians now this is what this is all about you know i want to encourage you i want to fire christians up you know we live in dark times and it's getting darker and that's not a cop out and that's that's not giving up That's saying that in the midst of dark times, we who have the answer, Jesus, we who have his authority, the authority of his name, we who carry salvation for the lost, just like we were lost, we need to stand up and do what God has called us to do so the rest of the world in the midst of the darkness can see the light of Jesus. You know, it doesn't matter how dark it is, because I believe the darker it gets, the brighter the light of Jesus shines. So let me say this, though, to the Christians. You cannot be wicked. You cannot regard wickedness in your heart, in your mind, and ever be intimate with God. It's intimacy with God that proves that he's real to those who don't believe in him, or those who have never met him. Now, on the other hand, you can't be intimate with God and allow wickedness in your, in your heart and in your life. And now, I realize that none of us are perfect, and thank God for God's grace. Thank God that Jesus died for the whole world, and he took all the sin away. I mean, he died for our sins. But we must appropriate the forgiveness that Jesus has provided through the cross of Calvary. You do that by learning the Word and knowing what the Word says about you as a born-again, spirit-filled Christian who is now the righteousness of God in Christ and in Christ Jesus alone. So, you can't be wicked. You can't regard wickedness in your heart. It's not that you won't have thoughts of wickedness, and it's not that you won't do something every now and then. But I'm talking about a Christian who is bound up in some form of self-gratification or whether it's unforgiveness in their heart, hatred, uh, an uncontrollable tongue, doing things, and, and really, equally as important, not doing things that we should do. You know, revival is needed when believers don't see where they're sinning or they don't see that they need God. Now, I'm going to insert something here that I think is very important and and I think is very powerful. A few years ago, I heard a message, um, I was in an interview with a pastor, a pretty well-known pastor in the United States, who had gone over to Africa and was doing some ministry over there, and he was sharing that one Sunday morning he was scheduled to speak at a very large church in a nation in Africa. They came to pick him up at his hotel, and they drove to this place. And when they drove in to the the um, the grounds of the church, it was a rather large church. There were hardly there was not much of a parking area, just grassy areas or dirt, and um, there were maybe just a handful of cars there. But when they walked in, there were thousands, literally thousands of people waiting for the church service to start. And actually, before they even got in, they noticed thousands of people outside trying to get into the church or coming down the road or walking down the road, but hardly no cars. And it would just blew this pastor away, this American pastor. And he was asking, you know, uh, or he began to think, where are all these people coming from? So he asked the pastor, who was an African man, asked him, uh, you know, just quite frankly, he said, you know, what do you do to get all these people to come to church on Sunday morning? And the answer that he gave him just cut him to the quick. Here's what he said. Well, in Africa, we need God. And those words pierced to the core of that pastor. In Africa... We need God. And, and my point in saying all this is, in America, we need God, but we're not going to get more God until we realize that we need God. Revival comes when we realize we need God. Revival won't come when we think we're doing okay Or we think that, well, you know, I'll go to a good church, and it's active, and it's growing and everything. And yeah, I know I watch this on TV, or I go and watch this, or I do this on the internet. Or I know, you know, I I just haven't forgiven, I haven't made amends with Uncle Fuddy Duddy or whoever, you know. And um, I, you know, but I'm okay, I'm okay. And when you don't see that you need, that you desperately need God, that means you need revival. But again, revival only comes when we get to the point that we say, Oh, I need you, God. I see my mistakes. I see where I've, I've ignored you. I see where I've distanced myself from you, or I see where what I've been doing is wrong when I thought it wasn't wrong. And then you begin to cry out to Jesus because you see, you see the reality, folks, the truth that we're all desperate for God. That becomes a reality. That's when revival begins to take place. And so that's what I'm trying to do here is stir people up so that we can get to a point to where we see in America. we see in our nation, the United States of America that we need God. Look, it has to happen in the church, in the church. It won't happen anywhere else until it happens in the church. If the world sees that we don't need God, then they're not going to want not need God. But when the world sees that we're desperate for our God, then the power of God begins to deal with the hearts of the unbelieving and the believing alike. So, you can't regard sin and wickedness in your heart and be intimate with God, and you can't be intimate with God if you continue... To allow that to happen, so I just want to insert that. But I want to talk for a few minutes about what what's happening in the United States of America, and really in most of the world. It's it's no uh, great revelation. It's no secret revealed, but it's it's the truth of what's going on in the world today. And uh, I, I just want to touch on that. Let me get to one scripture here. Now Matthew eleven twelve. Matthew eleven twelve, Jesus said this. <clears throat> now, this, it's going to sound like this scripture comes out of nowhere, but I'm going to explain it. Jesus said, Matthew eleven twelve, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. You know, I've heard that scripture explained uh, um, two or three ways all, all of my born-again life but I've never been able to resolve the definitions and the explanations in my spirit that that's really what Jesus is saying. You know, some people say, well, you know, if you really want to know God, you just got to be violent with all the forces and take the kingdom of God. But listen, Jesus took the hit for us. He paid the price for us. He's the one that was whipped and marred beyond recognition. He's the one that wore the crown of thorns. He's the one that bore the stripes and and was uh, pierced in the side and so forth and so on and shed the blood. He's the one so that we wouldn't have to do something like that. And for me, I didn't violently enter the kingdom of God. Jesus provided it for me. All I have to do is believe, and I did. Believe that Jesus did it for me through the cross. And being saved is that simple. Entering the kingdom of God is that simple, but you truly must believe that what He did, He did it for you and for me. So, I don't have to... Swing a sword to and fro to enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't have to enter with grenades and, and, and uh, M16 rifles, AK-47s, shooting guns. I just simply believe that what Jesus did for me, he did. And receive it. And receive him. And I'm saved just like that. So, my explanation of this, I believe the Lord told me. And it's not that great revelation. You may already know this. But I, I think we all we we all ought to get on the same page concerning this because this is powerful. So Jesus says, "From the days of John the Baptist until now." Well, first of all, when Jesus said this, it could possibly only been a few days or a few weeks since John the Baptist baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. John the Baptist came. You know, he was born about six months before Jesus. His ministry started before Jesus. It's not clear how long John the Baptist was baptizing people until Jesus came and was baptized but Jesus had to have said this at the longest no more than three years after John the Baptist came on the scene because Jesus' ministry was only three and a half years. I believe it was just a few days but anyway Jesus says from the days of John the Baptist until now. Well now Jesus came and did what he did so that now extends to right now. From the days of John the Baptist until right now, the time you're listening to this, uh, this teaching and beyond, okay, is a period. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. Why does the kingdom of heaven suffer violence and violent men take it by force? Because John the Baptist is the first human that ever came preaching that we should repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. Now, John the Baptist said that because God told him to, but God told him to say that because the king was already on the earth. If the king is here, my friend, then the kingdom is here. And so John's, part of his message was to say, repent, turn away from your sins, turn back to God the Father, because the kingdom is here. And the kingdom is here because the king is here. And not too long after that, John saw Jesus and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember when Jesus was prophesied, uh, I mean, back in, uh, in in the early Gospels, um, King Herod wanted to know where Jesus, uh, they said he was going to be born. Of course, they said in Bethlehem of Judea. He said to the, to the uh, three or not the three kings, but the, the magi from the east. He said to them, you know, go find where he is. Find this, this baby so I can come and worship him when really what he wanted to do was kill him. And so they kind of tricked him and found Jesus left by another way. It makes Herod mad. So he has all the babies two years old and under murdered and slaughtered. And so this is a good example of the kingdom of heaven suffering violence. But it really, really, really started when John the Baptist came and he said, the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven was actually there when Jesus was born. That's why there was an attempt to snuff him out. But so from the days of John the Baptist, because he began to preach, do something about it. Turn from your sins. The kingdom of heaven is here. Now, that's what happened. That's what was different when John the Baptist came on the scene from before. Jesus said the law and the prophets prophesied until John, but since then the kingdom of heaven has been preached, been proclaimed. And that brought about opposition from Satan. He tried to snuff out Jesus before he even grew up. But listen to me carefully. When churches are burned or destroyed in China and in India so that Christians cannot meet together, that's the kingdom of heaven suffering violence and violent men attempting to take it by force. The atrocity is, you know, Christians are the ones that suffer for that, but the kingdom of God, the good news is, flourishes regardless of the persecution. And when a high court decides to exclude God from our schools, that's the kingdom of God suffering violence and violent men taking it by force. Let me give you another example. When the high court in the land decrees that it's okay that over 4,000 babies per day in our nation, known as the United States of America, can be murdered legally, that's the kingdom of God suffering violence and violent men attempting to take it by force. Now, to clear it up even more, let me give you an example from the scripture, Matthew chapter 23, verse 14. Remember the time when Jesus started putting it on the Pharisees and the scribes and giving them all these woes, woe unto you. Well, it's the very first wo- woe. Catch this, listen to this. Matthew twenty-three thirteen. Jesus said this. He said, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. There it is right there. It's still happening today. You see, there are attempts to oppose Christianity today and make legislation or make rulings against the people that stand for the word of God in Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom of heaven suffering violence and violent men taking it, or at least attempting to take it by force. Everywhere I've studied, everywhere I've researched, when the persecution came, the church flourished anyway. Wow. that's That's another story there. But so... America has fallen a long way from where she was. Now, some people say, well, you know, you know." the truth is, a lot of the church, a lot of Christians are so involved in their own worlds, their own families, their own jobs, their own ministries, that it doesn't really matter to them what's going on as long, or maybe I should say, until it affects them. And in this day and age, when something that's been going on a while finally affects you, it's almost too late. But with that said, let me counter that by saying with Jesus, it's never too late if we'll just remember that we desperately need Him. So, what's the answer for America? Well, of course, the answer is Jesus and the church. Jesus in the church. I say Jesus in the church because Jesus is the answer. He provides it all. But the church is the body of Christ, the body of Jesus in the earth today. He is at the right hand of God. His body, his arms, his legs, the body of believers in the church. I mean, being the church universal is here in the world today. But now, James says this in James 4.8, the Apostle James, he said, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So, James is talking to believers. We need to draw near to God so that He will draw near to us. But see, the opposite takes place when we push away from God. If we push away from God, he will push away from us. It's not that God goes, okay, if that's the way you want it, you push away from me, I'm going to push. No, it's like this. When you move away from God, you move away from all that God is. You move away from his protection, his wisdom, his blessings. His health that he provides, because you choose to move away, and if you move away from God and all that he provides, then in essence, you're really moving with the world and all it provides, and the two don't match. The two don't go together. There's a scripture from Psalm 73, verse 28. It's a psalm of Asaph. It's one of my favorite scriptures. Again, it's one of those as for me uh, scriptures. But Asaph says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord, the Lord God, my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Now think about that short little scripture. As far as I'm concerned, Asaph says, and this is my prayer too. Is, look, as far as Steve is concerned, being close to God is good for me. It's that simple. And it's that way for everybody. You may not know this, but let me just go ahead and tell you. The closer to God you get, the better off it is for, or the better off you are, and the better it is for you. The nearness of God is my good. So the psalmist says here, I get it. Wow. It's better for me to be near to God than not be near to God or to be far away from God. It's my good. And I like it so much. I get this so much. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to make God my hangout. I'm going to make Him my hiding place. I'm going to make Him my refuge. And the more I'm with God, the more I'm going to declare God. Man. (laughs) I love this passage of Scripture. So the answer for America is Jesus and the church. But the church... Is responsible because we are the ones that can draw near to God and God draw near to us. We are the ones that God moves through as the answer and the solution and the provision if we cleanse our hands and we turn back to Him. The answer for America and the world is not in politics. It's not in debate or legislation, and it's not in a judge's decision. The answer lies within the church. So, if the answer lies within the church, and it does, then the answer for our nation must be applied by the church of Jesus Christ, his body in the earth. Now, let's go to 2 Chronicles 7, verses 13 and 14. This is a very popular scripture. People use it all the time to teach on prayer, and that's good. But there's so much more than prayer alone in this scripture. God says this. He says in 2 Chronicles 7, 13 and 14, If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, that's not good. Or if I command the locusts to devour the land that's not good either. Or if I send pestilence among my people, that's not good. Notice he said, my people. And then verse 14, as a result of that, and my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves, and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now, Jesus, or excuse me, God, addresses His people in the earth today. His people purchased by the blood of Jesus. You know, the scripture says that we're a chosen generation, a holy nation, a peculiar people. You know, we're we're uh, God's own possession. And that's what I want you to see. Called out of darkness into His marvelous light to declare His praises. We are His possession. That makes us His possession. People. So if his people, who are called by his name, number one, humble themselves. There's four things here, not just one. It's not just prayer. Number one, the church, we must humble ourselves. We must, number two, pray. Number three, seek his face. Number four, turn from our wicked ways. And then he will hear from heaven. In other words, then he's going to do something about it. Let's talk about humble yourselves. This is a primitive root. Properly, it means to bend the knee, to humiliate, to vanquish, to bring down low, to bring into subjection, uh, to bring under, to humble self or subdue. Remember, the humility that was in Africa at this one church when the pastor asked them how so, how he got so many people to come to church and he said well you know it's just an honest pure answer in Africa we need god that's humility right there you can't properly pray until you're truly humbled and to be humbled means that you really need god you know that you need god you have a revelation I mean, God reveals to you that you need Him. That's when your prayer becomes fervent. Humility is coming to the realization that you need God, and without Him, you are nothing. You see, most people look at Jesus, they say, well, I need Jesus to get to heaven, and that's it. But I'm telling you something. You need Jesus to wake up in the morning. You need Jesus to take the next breath. You need Jesus to give you the next thought. You need Jesus to give you the words in your mouth. Because you are here by His doing. You are in His kingdom. Yes, you invited Him in. But Jesus didn't save you just so you would go to heaven. He saved you so that through you, others would go to heaven. And that requires you living for a period of time on this earth. (laughs) If all that God offered was just going to heaven, we would accept Jesus and drop dead. But there's a world out there, and I truly believe that the way you live in heaven is determined by what you do on this earth. You know, there's the the talent of the... I mean, the parable of the the ten talents, the five talents, and the one talent. You know, it, it is about money, of course, but it's also about what you do with what Jesus gives to us. Because the Master will come a-calling one day and He's going to want to know what you did with what He gave you. He's going to know what you did with the salvation He gave you. He's going to know what you did uh, as the vessel of salvation as you lived out the rest of your life in this earth. You being the vessel. And that's another, a whole other message and I, I won't go there right now. But humility is realizing that we need God. When we come to that realization that we need God, then you're going to find yourself on your face before God. So number one, we've got to be humble. Ask God to reveal the stuff that's making you proud. James 4, 6, James said, but he gives a greater grace. Thank God for that. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. Humility is the opposite of pride. Pride causes us to be destroyed. Humility causes the grace of God to be heaped upon us. I don't know about you, but grace is a whole lot better than pride. It's a whole lot better than destruction, as Proverbs says. So if we truly humble ourselves, if we come to the realization and we even pray, God, help me to know that I need you more than I do. If we do that and He begins to show us this humility will produce fervency in our prayers. You see, we try to pray sometimes out of a lack of humility. And if it ain't humility, my friend, it's pride. And when we don't pray like we should pray... That's pride because it indicates that we don't really think we need God. If we are desperate for God, friend, you're going to be a prayer warrior. You're going to be dependent on prayer. You're going to be on your face. You're going to be in his presence as much as you can. And see, this is what brings about revival. Revival, again, starts with a realization, a revelation, if you will, that we need God more of God. We need more God, much more God than we think we have now. (laughs) So fervency in our prayers, humility produces fervency. Fervency compels us then to seek the face of God. Number one, humble ourselves. Number two, pray. There's a lot of teaching on prayer. I don't need to go deep into that. We know about prayer, but you can't effectively pray unless you know how much you need God, which is humility. So number one, humble themselves. Number two, pray. Number three, seek my face. There's a difference from just praying about something or for someone than seeking the face of God. Again, humility will produce fervency in our prayers and it's that fervency that will compel compel us to get on our face before God and seek his face and not just ask him for things you see the more int- i mean the more we seek the face of God out of fervent prayer the more intimate we are with God and the more intimacy we experience with God now some people don't even have a clue what i'm talking about because you don't think you need God But intimacy, some people get nervous when you talk about intimacy with God because God's so great, how could you be intimate with Him? He made it possible through Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for that. So let me give you the the, the progression one more time here. Humility leads us to fervency in our prayer. So there's prayer. Fervency compels us to seek the face of God, not just asking for things. And the more we seek His face, the more intimate we are with God. And listen to this. When you become intimate with God, He will speak things to you that you never would have heard before or you never will hear until you do. God wants this not just for preachers and pastors and evangelists and fivefold ministry and those specially anointed people. He wants this for everybody. He wants you to become intimate with God so that He can tell you things. Things that can change you, change others, and change even nations. Man. See, this is the responsibility of the church. We've been passive too long. We've been sitting by, letting stuff happening because it's not directly affecting us. It really is. We just aren't keen enough to notice it yet. Because we can't sense the spiritual darkness going on. But man, when you become intimate with God, he'll show you things, he will speak things to you that will change your life, and again, change, if necessary, nations and continents, my friend. But only when you humble yourself, and when you pray and seek the face of God, can then you turn from your wicked ways. Yes, there's repentance. Now, repentance is when you make a commitment John the Baptist required people to make a commitment to turn back to God, turn away from the, the world, turn away from the direction they're going and go back to God so that they would receive the Son of God when he came. That that was a commitment that was back then was made from the heart, but it, there wasn't a lot of spiritual help there because Jesus hadn't provided for everybody salvation and the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So there is a, a commitment we have to make, and that's... What I'm hoping you'll do today, I'm praying that you'll do that today, that you'll make a commitment to humble yourself, to seek humility in God, and to pray, and to be fervent in your prayer, and to learn how to seek His face, which of course will cause you to turn away from wickedness. God will show you things that you didn't think were bad, and they may not be outright sin, and they may be. But he will show you things, giving you a super sensitivity to the things of the spirit world so that you can discern what is good and bad. That's when a believer starts really becoming effective for God. And it starts with just a desire to grow closer to God. You know, I've always said this, some people might not understand this, but I do. <laughs> that it you know revival, if you revival starts with a decision. How do you have revival? You make a decision to have revival. That's where it starts. But you have to, you have to press into humility by asking God to humble your, help you humble yourself and, and show you how to do that, which again leads you to fervent prayer, which leads you to seeking His face, which leads you to turning from your wicked ways. And as I was saying before, that you can't be wicked and be intimate with God. You can't be intimate with God and allow wickedness. And, and the, the last part of that means this. First of all, if you, if you are re, re, uh, regarding wickedness in your heart and in your mind, then you're not intimate with God. But if you are intimate with God, you know what I'm talking about. You will not allow wickedness in your heart because it's like night and day. That's the problem with the church today. We have a problem discerning what's really sin and what's not. And a lot of the things the way we discern it is that it's not sin but it really truly is. And still the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, brings death. We reap the harvest of death if we commit sin. We willfully and habitually sin especially because we don't realize or we don't think it's really sin. So we need to humble ourselves and we need to pray. We need to seek the face of God and we need to turn from our wicked ways. And, and the scripture says, Then will God hear from heaven. Then will He forgive their sin, our sin, and heal our land. The answer is Jesus. But since we are the body of Jesus, I said it earlier the church is the answer. The church is responsible for for the rivers being turned into the wilderness. That may be harsh, but it is. The church is responsible for God turning the springs of water into a thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salt waste. Why? Because of the wickedness, God said, of those who dwell in it. But the church is also... this. That's the bad news. This is the good news, my friend. The church is also responsible for God changing the wilderness into a pool of water and a dry land into springs of water. The church is also responsible for God making the hungry, hungry for Him to dwell there, so that they may establish an inhabited city. The church is responsible for God allowing and bringing back people and and health in the land and fruitfulness so that they can sow fields and plant vineyards and gather a fruitful harvest. The church is responsible, and my prayer in these last days is that she will realize that. I believe my calling is to help stir up the church in in a godly way, in a powerful, Holy Spirit-anointed way, to motivate the church to get back on her face before God. Listen, nothing is impossible with our God. That's a powerful scripture, and it's a, it's a great memorizing scripture. It's a great thing to put on a plaque. But listen, my friend, it doesn't work until you believe it and live it. But that is the truth. Nothing is impossible. With God, whether it's something personally you you're believing God for, a breakthrough you need, you need, or if you like me, you're you're standing for the nation we live in and for other nations of the world, nothing is impossible to Him. And as I close, I want to say that I believe that we are in the greatest time ever for the church before she's taken back out of here and we go to be with Jesus. But let me tell you something. I believe we live in the greatest time. It may be the darkest of times, but it's also the brightest of times. Times because those who are uh, getting it now, beginning to get it, get it are standing up and, and, and they're declaring the Word of God in our land that God can do anything. I want to thank you for, for stopping by and listening to my podcast. Uh, thank you for allowing me to share my heart and to be used by Jesus. You have a blessed day. God bless you.